BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank. Be bold. Venture wisely. Take your Wi-Fi further with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity. With fast speeds and reliable coverage, home just got even sweeter with the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. From KQED. Good morning. This is the California Report. I'm Saul Gonzalez in Los Angeles. Governor Gavin Newsom wants to ban new oil drilling near schools, homes, and many businesses, proposing a rule yesterday aimed at improving the health of millions of Californians. KQED politics correspondent Marisa Lagos reports. Newsom directed state regulators to bar new drilling within 3,200 feet of houses, schools, and businesses open to the public. Under his plan, existing wells would have to install pollution controls to mitigate their harm. The rule likely wouldn't take effect until 2023, after the state works through its regulatory process. This is one commitment of many that the state is making to lead this nation, and I would argue lead the world, on this transition. We don't see oil in our future. We don't. Health advocates who join the governor say the change could help reduce rates of asthma and cancer and protect vulnerable pregnant women as well as children. For the California Report, I'm Marisa Lagos. On a related topic, let's turn to the investigation into the oil spill off the coast of Orange County. The Orange County Sheriff's Department says its Harbor Patrol boats picked up reports of a possible spill on a marine radio emergency channel about an hour before the Coast Guard had heard anything, and about 15 hours before the spill was confirmed. A spokesperson for the Sheriff's Department says at least one of its boats checked on reports of the spill on the night of October 1st, but didn't find anything in the water. The Coast Guard says multiple calls came in about a possible spill that night, but the agency only acted about an hour later, after receiving a report from a commercial vessel anchored off the coast. Coast Guard officials say they had no prior knowledge that the Harbor Patrol had actually searched for the spill that evening. This comes as two Orange County cities, Huntington Beach and Laguna Beach, passed resolutions this week to support a ban on offshore drilling. And the Bay Conservation and Development Commission has adopted a Bay area-wide plan for adapting to rising seas. KQED climate reporter Ezra David Romero explains. State regulators who oversee the Bay's shoreline worked for two years to come up with a plan. Scientists project the Bay could rise by several feet by the end of the century, a result of warming temperatures. The agency will be the backbone in convincing 101 cities, 9 counties, and a dizzying array of groups to coordinate their levees and natural protections. Jessica Fain is BCDC's planning director. It's a scary place in a way because there's no one doing it before us. Um, And I think a lot of eyes are on the Bay Area to, to, to look at us as a model. What the plan doesn't do is give regulators the power to force developers, cities, or agencies to plan for rising tides. Instead, it empowers local working groups to find funding and build consensus. For the California Report, I'm Ezra David Romero. Support for KQED podcasts comes from the Exploratorium. Don't miss Extraordinary, a new exhibition of incredible art made from everyday stuff like shoes, light bulbs, and Lego pieces. Opening June 13th at Pier 15. Tickets at exploratorium.edu extra. Hey, KQED listeners. I'm right now as podcast host, Pendarvis Harshaw. 
dropping a line to invite you to a summer evening of live contemporary jazz at the KQED headquarters in San Francisco, Thursday, June 20th at 7 p.m. We've got a stacked lineup of dope musicians, including vocalist Jamie Z, saxophonist Lydia Rodriguez, and harpist Destiny Muhammad. And Newsflash is the closing event for our podcast. We've had a great run, so help us celebrate the end of this chapter. Get tickets to Liner Notes Live at kqed.org slash events. A new state audit finds California's Board of State and Community Corrections, which helps run the state's adult and juvenile justice and penal systems, mismanaged nearly $60 million in federal COVID relief funds. KQED's Katie Orr reports. The report from State Auditor Elaine Howell finds the board improperly awarded more than $20 million to the Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation and failed to make grants available to cities and tribes. The board made the application process so cumbersome, Howell says, nearly half of eligible counties did not apply. It also failed to conduct oversight of the funds it did award or inform the federal government how money was being spent. The mismanagement puts the state at risk of having to return unspent or misused funds to the federal government. Board members say they take the audit's findings seriously, but disagree with the recommendation to revise grant procedures. For the California Report, I'm Katie Orr in Sacramento. The failed recall attempt targeting Governor Newsom is over, but there are plenty of other efforts across the state to remove elected officials from office. In Shasta County, a conservative member of the Board of Supervisors is facing a recall election promoted by members of a local militia, and things have gotten ugly. As KQED politics editor Scott Schaefer reports, the county has been roiled by threats of violence for months. The supervisor facing a recall is Leonard Modi, a former police chief in Redding. Modi and other supervisors have enraged some of the county's more conservative residents over their implementation of state mask and vaccine mandates. One resident, Elizabeth Walker, spoke for many at a meeting of the county board of supervisors this week. The governor is not your boss. The voters of Shasta County are. You, along with all the voters of California, are the governor's boss. Don't tell us you are powerless. Rise up and act. In 2020, Donald Trump carried Shasta County by 33 points over Joe Biden. The recall of Governor Newsom passed by a similar margin. And lately, the political climate has divided friends and family. It feels like war up here, and that's no hyperbole. That's Donnie Chamberlain, who runs a local online blog called News Cafe. She says it's ironic that pandemic politics are dividing the county, which she says never took the mandates that seriously. There's been no enforcement. So um, it's kind of interesting that we're even going through this. Leonard Modi, the supervisor facing a recall, is a staunch Republican and a firm supporter of gun owner rights. But that hasn't stopped a local militia leader named Carlos Zapata from leading the fight to remove him for not standing up to Newsom. Yesterday, County Clerk Kathy Darling-Allen confirmed that recall supporters had collected enough valid signatures to place the question before voters. She's recommending February 8th as Election Day. She knows there will be close scrutiny of the election results. Given the political climate, it's a little more extreme um, pressure. 
One day before the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol, a county supervisor convened an unscheduled board meeting in defiance of the law. Donnie Chamberlain says the undercurrent of anger and the frequent threat of violence mean the months between now and the recall election will be even more tense than usual. It's about as ugly and horrible as I've ever seen it. It's very, very uncomfortable. For his part, Supervisor Modi, who won re-election last year, said in a statement that the recall is promoted by people, quote, spreading lies and misinformation aimed at dividing residents. He's asking voters to stand with him against the recall. For the California Report, I'm Scott Schaefer. Let's turn to wildfires and some good news. More than two months after it started in El Dorado County, crews have fully contained the Caldor Fire. The blaze, which burned more than 221,000 acres, destroyed more than a 1,000 structures, many of them homes in Grizzly Flats where the fire initially started. Thousands of people were ordered to evacuate the South Lake Tahoe area as the blaze threatened the city and communities around it. And although there was damage in communities along High Highway 50, South Lake Tahoe was mostly spared from any major damage. About 500 firefighters will remain on the Caldor Fire, mopping up and continuing repair efforts in the fire zone. The cause of the blaze remains under investigation. And while this week's rains here in California will help with the firefight on wildfires that are still active, there is concern about the potential for mudslides and flooding in burned out areas. Yesterday, in response to its homelessness crisis, the city of Los Angeles opened the country's largest so-called tiny home village. Next to a freeway in northeast L.A., more than 200 people will live in 100 metallic emergency shelter units, where they'll also have access to shower, laundry, and dining facilities, as well as counseling. Across California, cities are opening more of these tiny home villages to house their unhoused, and Washington State-based Pallet is building most of them. Many of its employees are formerly homeless themselves, and its founder and CEO is Amy King, who spoke to the California Report. King says California has become the largest market for her company's shelters, but she cautions they're not the solution to homelessness, and she doesn't even like calling them homes. We stay away from the word tiny home uh, very specifically because when people think of home, they think of a place where they live permanently, where their things are, where their people are. We think of pallet shelters as temporary stop places for people to stabilize and to get engaged with services, to think about recovery efforts, and then move on to home. So it can be a temporary home, but we don't want people to think of pallet communities as a permanent stopping place because that's not what they're intended for. And tiny houses kind of send that message and we don't we don't want to send that message. So play that out a little bit more, Miss King, as more of these villages open up around the state for the unhoused. How do you define or view them? Yeah, we see them as emergency sleeping cabins and temporary shelters. What we don't want is for people to accept this as the final stopping place. So the goal here and the model that we designed was, was designed and built in partnership with our staff who had lived experience, who said, it's really hard for people to go from living on the streets and not having access to resources and services to just jump to permanent housing. Now that's not true for everyone. I don't wanna put that blanket application on everybody who's experiencing homelessness because it's not true. But there is a subset of people experiencing homelessness that need a place to go temporarily to stabilize and engage with services to deal with their root cause issue of homelessness, whatever that might be. But the other piece of this that's really important to us 
is the idea of community. We all kind of embed ourselves into community, whether that's family or your place of work or your friend group or your church or whatever that is for you, right? And so for people experiencing homelessness, they feel that traumatic loss of connection. And so the idea with Palette was to create these communities where people could come and reconnect, find joy and healing and community with others and have a space that basically allows them to recover and rehabilitate so they can move to permanent housing. This is not permanent housing, though. We acknowledge that. Permanent housing is the solution to homelessness, and we need more of it. We know how long it takes, and we know how expensive it is. So we're just trying to fill the gap until we can build more permanent housing. That's Amy King, CEO of Pallet, a company that builds shelters for the homeless. And now to a preview of our sister show, the California Reports Weekly Magazine. This week, our Central Valley reporter, Alex Hall, tells us about the lasting impacts of keeping meat and poultry plants open during the pandemic and how some families still grapple with the fallout of deadly COVID-19 outbreaks inside one of the state's biggest poultry facilities. We're here, two fresh Foster Farms chickens. (laughs) You may recognize Foster Farms as a major poultry producer in the U.S. Foster Farms fresh chicken. Always natural, always fresh, always California grown. During the pandemic, as plants stayed open to maintain the food supply, workers got sick from COVID-19. At Foster Farms plants in California, 16 workers died and at least 20 were hospitalized. I talked to people whose spouses and family members spent decades working inside those plants, and I poured over thousands of pages of emails and safety investigation records. What I found was that Foster Farms didn't always give a complete picture of the problem to health officials, state regulators, and their own employees. We'd gotten a number of complaints of people that work there. Everyone's scared because there's so many people and like there's no way we can social distance. A year later, some of those workers' families are still grieving, struggling financially, and trying to make sense of what happened. If you want to hear the complete radio documentary from Alex Hall, tune in to the California Report magazine on your local NPR stations that carry it, or download the podcast. And that is the California Report for Friday, October 22nd. We are a production of KQED Public Radio. Our engineers are Danny Bringer and Katie McMurrin, with assistance from Seal Muller. Our producers are Mary Franklin Harvin, Holly J. McDeed, and Keith Mizuguchi. Our senior editors, Angela Corral. Our director of news is Vinnie Tong. Our executive editors, Ethan Tobin Lindsay. And our chief content officer is Holly Kernan. I'm Saul Gonzalez, your host. Thanks so much for listening, and have a great day and weekend. Support for the California Report comes from Blue Shield of California, rebuilding the future of health care with every Californian in mind, from quality and equitable care to not-for-profit values. Learn more at news.blueshieldca.com. Paint Care, now with 800 drop-off sites in California where households and businesses can recycle their leftover paint. More at paintcare.org. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose philanthropy harnesses the power of people and science to create innovative solutions for a healthy environment, just societies, and opportunities for human achievement. Take your Wi-Fi further with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity. With fast speeds and reliable coverage, home just got even sweeter with the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
Did you ever wonder what it's like to live alone, hidden in the woods, not speaking to a single soul for 30 years? Or wander the desert, uncover a hidden well, and dive to the bottom of the deepest water hole for 2,000 miles? The Snap Judgment Podcast takes you there with amazing stories told by the people who live them with an original soundscape that drops you directly into their shoes. Snap Judgment. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.